0: If if the day of the Lord is this dramatic inbreaking, the most dramatic inbreaking that we've seen in this side of glory is the incarnation itself. Hmm. Bobcast,
1: Bobcast 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 This is the Bobcast a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bavinck. Bob Squad, welcome to another episode of Bobcast. I'm Caleb Castro, and I'm joined here today not by Andrew Smith, my usual co-host. Andrew Smith is taking a break for these next couple weeks just to kind of be able to get ready for graduation, and have a quick little rest. I am not here alone, though. I am here with another fantastic guest speaker. This is Aaron Vanderheiden. Hey, it's good to be here. Now, now, Aaron. We are currently uh, recording in a, I don't know what do you want to call it, like a coat rack, coat room in yeah. mid-America. <laughs> free book coat room. Uh, free, yeah, there's free books in here. Uh, there are free coats and it is a room. <laughs> Dark closet in the lost bowels of Mid-America Reform Seminary. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's not quite the glamorous, uh, when I when I asked you to come on to Bobcast, this isn't probably the glamorous sort of setup you were thinking, but <laughs> here we are. There's a cork board and pots and pans in front of us. (laughs) So it's good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But I I promise you we're not professionals. (laughs) Aaron is a friend of mine here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. So I'm really thankful for him taking the time. He's about to graduate as well from seminary. So Aaron, why don't you uh, tell us a little about yourself?
0: Yeah, I uh, grew up in Southern Ontario, Canada, and then when I was 22, I moved up to Central Alberta, Canada. I'm a member of the URCNA, and i um, really thankful to be here and thankful to be studying at Mid-America Reform Seminary. Uh, it's been a huge blessing for my wife and our kids, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to graduation and seeing what the Lord has in store for myself and,
1: and for my family in the future. That's fantastic. Aaron, you're currently attending Linwood United Reformed Church here in uh, Illinois. That's correct, yep. And you've done uh, internships where at so far these past couple summers? Edmonton, Alberta. And then last summer, I did a joint internship
0: between Lacombe, Alberta, and Pinocchio, Alberta as well.
1: So you're a Canadian through and through. Through and through. I'm sorry. I bleed red. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that could mean different things in other parts of the world <laughs> Aaron is not a communist, I guarantee you <laughs> Said the son of Fidel Castro That's right Fidel Castro right. Well, yeah, so Aaron is very gifted in the knowledge of scripture uh, Especially in Hebrew So right now he's been doing a uh, study uh, An independent study uh, Mid-America On one particular theme in the Old Testament uh, The Day of the Lord you know, we, we've had opportunity to talk about it for the past couple months. You know, Aaron is just a treasure trove here of information for us. So we want to share some of that with you uh, as we explore in Bob Inc.'s Reformed Dogmatics in Volume 4. Some of the discussion will come from pages 691 onwards of Volume 4 of Reformed Dogmatics. But what is the Day of the Lord? You know, uh, do you find that there's like some confusion? Like what, what what do people usually think the Day of the Lord is, you think?
0: I think in, in in general, a lot of people tend to reduce the phrase to the first coming of Christ and then his second advent as well. And of course, that's, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to consider the day of the Lord as that that grand event that is the incarnation and the grand event that will be uh, our Lord's return. But if, if you look at the, especially the Old Testament data that we have as it relates to the day of the Lord, specifically in the minor prophets, which is the main focus of this independent study, the Day of the Lord, in the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, you can actually broaden the scope of it to avoid any confusion. You can actually kind of generalize the statement itself. And so, you know, different authors have given different definitions, um, one of which is is Eugene Kimball, who says it's, it's basically a sweeping phrase that Scripture uses to describe God's intervention in human history. And a lot of the definitions that are offered are similar to that. Some will say that it's any time Yahweh dramatically intervenes in human history. Others say it's a point in the past or future, imminent or distant, um, when the Lord intervenes for judgment. And so others will say something along the lines of it's Yahweh's unmistakable and powerful intervention. So if you put these things together, it's a much more general statement than just the first and second coming of Christ. Even if it does speak to that in a measure, there's still more that you
1: can say. So. In one sense, then, it's just very very broad yeah. in one manner yeah. um, so it's not just that first and second coming right. uh, so I mean right. so you're saying already that I can allude to various basically Yahweh's interaction in history his inbreaking in history if you will it's any kind of divine visitation and reading through that study from Kimball that you just referenced he speaks of this day of the Lord and things like Joel 115 where a uh, locust plague breaks out or in Isaiah 13, where uh, Babylon is defeated by the Medes and the Persians in reference to 539 BC. So th- there's things of like actual historic dates that can be said oh, the day of the Lord is upon us. Yahweh has visited us with his uh, power, his judgment is inbreaking.
0: Right. Like, if, if you look at Amos 5, that's a great passage in Scripture that speaks to the day of the Lord. And if you go in Amos 5, beginning of verse 18, it talks about, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And what's interesting is that in the context of it, towards the end of the chapter, the Lord says that he will send Israel into exile beyond hmm. Damascus. Now, Damascus being in the northern part of Israel... It borders, or at least closely borders, Assyria, and we know that around 722, the Assyrians came and they brought the Israelites into exile. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be, in the context of Amos 5 specifically, a reference to the day of the Lord as it relates to the exile of God's Mm -hmm. people, which is an interesting dynamic, and that's a dynamic that you see throughout the Minor Prophets as well, as it relates to either Israel or
1: Judah. So in one regard then, we were talking about this being like the day of the Lord can have broad applications. So here meaning uh, we got to pay attention to context as you say here with Amos. Amos is stating woe to you who desire the day of the Lord uh, as if it's something very, very negative and that there's repercussions of the Lord is bringing judgment on Israel Judah with exile. Then what about this idea of the day of the Lord in the sense of like the return of Christ? Is there like a day of the Lord above of all other days of the Lord, or or what? We can actually
0: answer that question if we if we stick with Amos five, because Amos five talks again in the context of the day of the Lord. In verse twenty four, it says, "Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream." Obviously, this was a favorite verse of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to to our context here, I mean, if there is one grand event where justice and righteousness come together. I think that the answer to that has to be the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. There's the, the justice of God poured out on the perfect righteousness of His only begotten Son, and I think the fulfillment that you find of Amos five twenty four is at the cross itself. So there, there is that that cosmic Day of the Lord idea there, and I think we've, you know, Caleb and I have talked about this before. Um, we've mentioned this before uh, in our discussions that we've had on this topic that. If, if the day of the Lord is this dramatic inbreaking, the most dramatic inbreaking that we've seen this side of glory is the incarnation itself mm. I mm. mean, reading Philippians 2, this is when the second person of the Holy Trinity, the blessed holy undivided Trinity, as one of our professors would say comes down to earth to, to tabernacle among God's people I mean, it doesn't really get, a dramatic inbreaking doesn't really get more dramatic than that this side of glory mm. um And so, while you can speak of it in terms of immediate judgment on Israel, or, you know, you read Obadiah's, the day of the Lord is likened to immediate judgment on the nation of Edom and Esau's descendants. You read about it in Zephaniah as as a judgment on Jerusalem, and again, in Amos as a judgment on God's people of Israel. You can liken it to the cross, but there's still more that you can say, even though the cross is still in view.
1: Hmm. Now, Eugene Kimball gives us a second uh, kind of view then of of this kind of uh, divine visitation, kind of getting along the lines of what you're talking about right now. He says that it could also be – the Day of the War could also be considered a final divine visitation that climaxes history in which God assembles all pagan nations to battle in ultimate destruction – where God delivers his people and establishes his royal rule. So what's kind of going on there in that kind of take of the day of the Lord?
0: Yeah, I'm working on my paper on this, and this is kind of what I'm talking about in a section that I that I have called the double-dual nature of the day of the Lord. The day refers to both judgment and blessing and restoration, but it also refers to judgment and or blessing and restoration on both the nations and God's people. So looking at that, that quote from Kimball, there seems to be this this eschatological fulfillment that has implications and restorative language for mm. both God's people and the pagan nations that, that surround God's people. And, and you see this theme in the Minor Prophets as well. You see it, as, as I mentioned before, in Obadiah on Edom. Mm. But also there's a of the Lord language or language in the context of the Minor Prophets where judgment is declared upon either Israel or the pagan nations. But then, in that same context, blessing is spoken of to both of them as well. So, for example, if if you go to, I believe it's Zephaniah chapter 3, towards the end of the chapter, it it talks about how verse 9 of chapter 3 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. But verse 8 before, the Lord says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up. And so, there seems to be this day of the Lord being paired with both judgment but also blessing to both God's people and restoration of the nations itself. Because again, in Zephaniah 3, verse 14 and following, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Right after woe is declared on this rebellious city of Jerusalem, then you have a little phrase in that day or on that day speaking to the day of the Lord. Then you have restorative language for both the nations and for God's people, Hmm. which which is interesting to see this this double dual nature Mm -hmm. judgment and blessing nations and Israel, all of which come underneath the banner of the day of the Lord itself.
1: Hmm. So in looking at it in this way, while you were quoting from Zephaniah 3, 9 uh, and from Zechariah 14, I mean, we're, we're not talking just about like the ethnic people of Israel here then, right? I mean, uh, what you're talking about, there's such a larger encompassing of who is impacted by this judgment of both blessing and curse. So, I mean, for the Jew of, say, in Jesus' time, when Jesus was actually on uh, on earth, maybe before his ministry or during his ministry, do you know how they might have taken these kind of passages? Is this kind of why they're like looking for like some kind of great political deliverance? I
0: think there could be implications of that. I, and I think a part of it is definitely, I mean, Old Testament Israel was waiting for this Messiah that was to come. Mm-hmm. And I think they understood it as somewhat in the context of the day of the Lord. I think, I think Malachi 4 speaks to that because in Malachi 4, it talks about... How the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, and how all the wicked and evil Mm. doers will be stubble. But it says, "But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall." And then in verse five, it talks about how he will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Mm. which seems to be Malachi and Joel having a bit of a, a relationship there with the great and awesome day of the Lord coming. But Elijah the prophet coming before, Christ explicitly says that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to mm. come. So in, in Malachi, there seems to be a sense in which the day of the Lord is at least partially understood as messianic fulfillment as well. Mm. We've touched on that already, but I think specific for the people of Israel, I think the day of the Lord would encompass that that messianic fulfillment, the, the seed of Jesse that would come. And so I think it's, it's very interesting that the Old Testament ends with Malachi 4 and this understanding of what the day of the Lord is going to constitute. And it seems as if it's going to be Elijah, the prophet coming and turning the hearts of their fathers to their children. What was John the Baptist's message? Hmm. Turn and repent. I find that quite significant, but I think I would add here too, in order to understand Israel's understanding of the day of the Lord and really just an understanding of the day of the Lord in general, you kind of have to go back to the establishment of Israel as a nation itself. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to bless you, and all kinds of people of the world are going to be blessed through you. And then you get to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and you see the blessings and the curses for obedience and disobedience when Israel gets into Mm -hmm. the promised land. And so if we're going to understand that, we have to understand that the judgment of the Lord is largely because of Israel's apostasy and disobedience, which relates to the judgment language of the day of the Lord. But Hmm. the blessing language relates to the blessings for obedience that God declared to be upon Israel as well. And then if you understand Hmm. that and understand what Israel was supposed to be as a blessing to the nations where the nations would come and they would come to Jerusalem and worship the God of the Hebrews, the double dual nature of the Lord comes into view even there. And so if that was understood by Israel as the ethnic people of God... I think there would be really interesting indications or implications for them to understand that the day of the Lord isn't necessarily just for us because their prophets speak of it as being for the nations, Hmm. but also that the day of the Lord is both judgment and restoration as well. Hmm. And so I think the, the essence of the day of the Lord doesn't change for God's people now as new Testament Christian church and the essence of it is the same for both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church.
1: So you're saying that even going back when Israel was in the land and with the establishment of Israel, there was something always of a immediate judgment, immediate response of blessing and curse, but there was always something larger that was looming in it, something that was storing up for a great judgment. Yeah, Is I that about right? I think that's
0: right,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I think Bavinck will touch on that on page 698 of Reformed Dogmatics, uh, Volume 4, in the section The Judgment, where he relates this to Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, says Bavinck, comes The Judgment, an event pictured in the Old Testament as a victory of the Messiah over all Israel's enemies, but described in the New Testament more spiritually as a judicial work of Christ in which he judges and sentences all people in accordance with the law God gave them. I think that's That summarizes pretty well what you were just talking about. I mean, you know, you're saying that this was pictured in some form as an event in the Old Testament broadly. And I think that's very helpful to note in you giving this background so far, because you know, if if you're looking at Reformed dogmatics with us here, Bobbing doesn't jump much into an exposition of the Old Testament when he considers the day of the Lord here in chapter 17. He mainly deals with the New Testament. He's looking at, you know, New Testament eschatological insight into uh, what was going on, what's going on in the plan for the Lord to bring everything to its completion, to its consummation in Christ. But that stuff doesn't just like drop out of the sky. Like, I mean, this is revelation that's built upon revelation. You're giving us an uh, an overview then of how all this has actually been revealed and spoken of in the Old Testament. It's just now becoming manifest in the New Testament time.
0: Yeah. And I I think actually on the next page in Reformed Dogmatics, page 699, Bobbing speaks to that too. And he actually offers a nice summary, I think, of, of what we've been saying. He says, Scripture and history vie with each other in teaching that blessing and curse, compassion and anger, signs of favor and judgment alternate in the lives of people and nations. I mean, in this paper that I'm writing, I'm probably going to use that as a a nice summarizing quote of what not just the Old Testament data is showing, but what the the Old and New Testament data of the entire canon of Scripture is showing as it relates to the day of the Lord. It's, It's blessing and curse, it's compassion and anger, it's signs of favor and judgment, Alternating between the lives of people and of nations. I, I think that's a significant and actually fairly fulsome summary of what we've been talking about hmm. this afternoon to this point.
1: I like then in that next paragraph there on 699, how Bavinck referenced the uh, poet philosopher, uh, 19th century, late 18th century philosopher, Schiller, saying that the history of the world is the judgment of the world. You can find some of that in Hegel, talking about like history as a vehicle like moving all things along, the spirit of the age. Schiller saying, well, you know, the history of the world is basically moving into some form of a judgment constantly and he's correct in a manner. And yet that's not all there is. Bavinck saying judgment isn't a natural thing Evil is not a natural thing in this world. This world wasn't created evil. The world isn't created for judgment, ultimately, in the in the negative sense. But rather, he says, that's pantheism. He says, rather, the desire of the soul for the triumph of the good, the victory of justice, has nothing at all in common with the self-centered wish for earthly happiness and the satisfaction of the senses. On the contrary, the scripture takes account of the reality that humans are sensuous beings and hold before their eyes a reward that is great heaven. That reward is always subordinate to the honor of God's name and is secured by Christ along with the good works in which believers walk. He's saying this world is created for good. This world will manifest good. And there's a desire for goodness and proper restoration and reconciliation of all things. And that is headed in Christ, the apex of all things. All that is found in Christ and in his glory and exaltation of his name.
0: And I think you see elements of that in in Revelation 6. Hmm. There you Mm -hmm. have those who have been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. I mean, you can get into that, but it says in verse 10 of Revelation 6, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And in verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer Mm -hmm. until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There's this longing, even in heaven, for this judgment to come, Mm -hmm. for, for that second advent to come, for the coming of Christ to be realized and for the second coming of Christ to really make its dramatic mm-hmm. breaking, so that you know judgment on evil can be consummated mm-hmm. and finalized. The victory has been won. We know that. We see evidence mm-hmm. of that. Obviously, the the resurrection is evidence of that. But the consummation of it, we're still waiting for. And even these mm-hmm. saints in heaven are saying, "How long?" They're eagerly waiting for this cosmic final consummation. Mm-hmm day of the Lord to come.
1: Mm -hmm. And we get with that. I think also then uh, we see that, first of all, the blood of the martyrs is those who die for the sake of Christ and in the name of Christ is not blood wasted. It's not pointless. Uh, And this also then tells us suffering in this world is not pointless. You know, all things are moving along towards the purposes of God and for the good of those who love him. And so even then, what you just said also tells us, I mean, heaven isn't it. Heaven isn't the last thing. Our goal in living isn't merely to live, die, and then go to heaven and be with Jesus Christ, but for all things in creation to be reconciled, for the kingdom of God to be so plainly and fully manifest with the glory of Christ being known and plainly seen to the ends of the earth. The final triumph of good over the wicked.
0: And I think the inaugurated eschatology construct that Gerhardus that Voss presents and, and Herman Ritterboss as well kind of speaks to this too in that the kingdom has come the the victory has come and yet we're still waiting for for that final consummation we're still waiting for that that victory to be fully realized I mean there's the classic D-Day versus V-E-Day construction an, an analogy that a lot of people use but I think in this context it's very applicable I mean the, the battle has been won and yet we're still really waiting for that victory party that final supper that great feast in the new heavens and the new earth, and I think all of that is part and parcel of our of our discussion here too.
1: I want to come back to that in a moment. That made me think of First Peter chapter one uh, verse three onwards, which I actually just recently uh, exhorted at a at a church here. Here Peter says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Why? What's the purpose of that? Well, for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. This is, uh, as he would later say, the hope of what is to come, that we live presently, even now, with a joyful hope and expectation. As he says, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. For the obtaining of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's so much more than what we see before us. And it's always been planned out by the Lord. And everything has in history has been moving toward that fullness outcome of, of the faith and the salvation of souls.
0: Yeah, and I think that relates well to 2 Peter 3 where it talks about, mm-hmm. "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." We In our eschatology class, we talk about how calling people to come to faith in Christ isn't a mission that's going to fail. Mm-hmm. And then Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I mean, that's language that's very similar to Joel 2.31, where it talks about how the the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. There's this cosmic nature. There's cosmic implications for the creation. And yet, who wins the day? Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's those who have been brought into faith union with Christ. And even if the day of the Lord comes like a thief, the understanding being at an unexpected time, those who are in Christ wait with eager expectation. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so really in this whole independent study that I'm doing on the day of the Lord, it's instilling in me a newfound hope just on a, almost a, a devotional level that you know, no matter what is going on, that day of the Lord is coming, and that day of the Lord will be glorious, because the kingdom has already been inaugurated. There's There's been an initial dramatic inbreaking that has defeated death. The expectation of the future hope of our heavenly citizenship being eternally realized hmm. waits and remains, and I think is incredibly applicable for the church in the here now especially when we consider the political climate in which we find ourselves
1: mm-hmm. When, in what you just quoted from Second Peter, you go down a little further into verse 11, you know, having just spoken of the day of the Lord will come. I mean, that, that's a certain. He says it will come like a thief in the night. We won't yeah, expect make No, make no doubt about it. But the uh, verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. So the creation, uh, will be broken down and then recreated. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is uh, an encouragement and, and admonition to live devoted wholehearted life in Christ both in trust and in work in word and deed and he says why because we're waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God it's interesting that he refers to it there
0: as the day of God yeah I think that that speaks to that this is the work of God this is not something that that we do any kind of work Mm -hmm. to bring about this is because God preserves his church Because God has foreordained all things to happen, including the first and second coming of Christ. And so it's interesting that he changes from day of the Lord in verse 10 to day of God in verse 12. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if it just accents it that much more.
1: And then even more when we talk about in that last verse there on, on verse 13 of 2 Peter 3 this is, but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells so all the more so that God is the one who affects it God is the one who brings it to its completion and what it is is righteousness this kingdom of God is righteousness this day of God is the full display of righteousness his righteousness
0: well and that goes right back to Malachi 4 but for you who fear my name the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings there's this dramatic undoing of all that is unjust and unholy and evil in this world and when those new heavens and those new earth actually come there will be nothing but righteousness and I I love Revelation 21 4 where nothing bad is there ever again Mm -hmm. and there's just perfection for all time and the more that I study this Day of the Lord theme, the more I realize how profound the implications are of it, and the more you see it sprinkled out as part of, of really the essence and the skeleton of the profound gospel Christian message. That's all the time we have for this week's Bobcast. Next week we'll continue this discussion with Caleb and Aaron Vanderheiden on the Day of the Lord. Until then, totes zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological contents. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.